Morning, everybody. So if you go back about 800 years from what we've been talking about in the Gospel of Matthew to approximately 740 BC, there's a prophet named Isaiah who gets this out of this world, like sensory overload vision. He's in the temple. And while he's in the temple, all of a sudden the landscape is just transformed into something that probably defies description, but we get like the best effort at description of it in Isaiah chapter 6. This is what he writes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now we talk about this a lot, but I always want to point it out. If you're reading in the Old Testament and you see the word Lord in all capitals, that's not translating a word that means Lord. It's actually translating the personal name of Israel's God, Yahweh. So what they're saying is holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Glory is this word that means something similar to weight. It's about like the weight and magnitude of something or someone. And so Isaiah's in the temple, and all of a sudden, he sees Yahweh on his throne. And the only way that he can kind of describe the greatness and majesty and spectacle of it is that just the train of the throne of Yahweh or of the, sorry, of the robe of Yahweh, is enough to fill the entire temple. And he's surrounded by these mysterious spiritual beings. They're called seraphim, which can either mean some combination of serpent or burning one. And so we're not exactly sure what they looked like, but that, you know, take that as it will. What we do know, they had six wings. Two they're flying with, two they're covering their face because of the very holiness of God, and two they used to cover their feet, which we'll understand why in a little bit. And what they're crying out to one another is holy, holy, holy. And this has everything to do with what we're going to talk about today in the Gospel of Matthew. The word holy is a word that Christians use a lot and understand not a lot. It's not a word that we use in any other context, really, and it's, so it's hard for us to kind of grasp what it even means. And it's the only word, the only attribute of God that's ever spoken three times of him like this. And that's a Hebrew way of kind of adding emphasis of the quality that's being ascribed to someone. And so to call God holy, 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 the only attribute where you get it three times like that, means this is something central to the character of God, what God is like. In fact, there are actually theologians who say that holy is almost like an adjective for God himself. Like this is the godness of God, a theologian named Michael Bird likes to say. The very godness of God. The most helpful way to think about it, in my opinion, is to think of it as the very opposite of common. And you see that in the Old Testament. There are things that are holy, that are more like God, that are closer to God, and there are things that are common or ordinary. And if you think about it that way, what it means is that, that God's holiness is the quality of otherness and uniqueness that God has. It's the very nature of God as other than his creation, the thing that separates him from everything else. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea that God's holiness is so powerful and so overwhelming that it is a dangerous an unsafe thing for the common or the ordinary to be in the presence of the holy. 
You see some examples of this in things like when Moses encounters God in the burning bush. What does God tell him? Anybody remember? Take your shoes off because the ground here is holy because you're in the presence, the immediate presence of God. Now, the Jewish people knew that the presence of God filled the entire earth, but there's some sense in which his holiness was immediately present in that bush. So he says, take your shoes off. Your shoes are what you walk all over the ground with. They're dirty. They're unclean. This is the same reason why the seraphim cover their feet. They have a dedicated set of wings just for foot covering, right? Because the presence of God is so overwhelmingly holy. And Isaiah recognizes this immediately. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. So Isaiah's immediate response to recognizing the holiness of God is not like, oh, wow, I get to be in the temple and God is here in this vision. His immediate thought is, oh, no, I should not be here. This isn't right. I don't belong. This is not a safe place for me to be. This is not a right place for me to be. I'm, it says lost in this translation. Some of you have probably seen translations where he says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm coming apart is the sense of that word. Because this is a terrible situation for me in my comparative unholiness to be in the presence of a holy God. And this incredibly mysterious thing happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So Isaiah is in the presence of God. He recognizes God's holiness and his unworthiness. He says, Woe is me, I am undone because I am unclean. And one of the spiritual beings in the presence of God takes a coal from the altar in the very presence of God and touches it to kind of the, the source of, of Isaiah's uncleanness, the place where his uncleanness is focused in this image, and cleanses it. So God does what's necessary for Isaiah to be in the presence of God. And after this, Isaiah gets the great call to be one of the greatest prophets in Israel's history. And God tells him what's going to happen, how it's going to go, how hard it's going to be, and Isaiah goes, yes, I'm in. And he goes and does it with this kind of newly purified mouth. So fast forward 800 years from that situation, and you have Jesus, who has just given the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we just spent the last several weeks going through, and now he's coming down the mountain. You can see it comes right after that section, when he came down from the mountain. And Matthew's about to launch into a section where we transition from the kind of teaching that, that Jesus just did, this really long section of teaching, to more of a section of action and deeds instead of words. Today we're literally going to look at four verses, but it's a story that is profoundly significant for all of us to understand the nature of God and how he relates to us. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. We have a disease in the modern world that we call leprosy. It's technically Hansen's disease, and it's a very specific type of disease. And both in Greek and in Hebrew, the word that means leper and leprosy is not that specific. So he doesn't have Hansen's disease necessarily. In fact, he probably doesn't. He, but he has some type of a skin disease. The word leper or leprosy is a general term for like a class of skin diseases. So we don't necessarily know exactly what he's suffering with 
or how severe it is, but we know that, you know, he's, he's got a huge need that he's willing to actually come before Jesus and present. And there's this kind of interesting ambiguity in how he approaches Jesus because he says Lord to him, which is the Greek word kurios and can mean just like a common respectful way of addressing someone, like a stronger version of sir. It's what you would call like your boss or somebody who is really socially superior to you. But it can also mean more than that. The word Lord can be a way of addressing somebody who is more than human. You can see that because as the apostles get to know who Jesus is, they continue to call him Lord. And even after his death and resurrection, that's how they refer to him. The second thing that's kind of ambiguous is this word knelt. It says the leper knelt before him. And that word in Greek, proskuneo, can mean literally to kneel or to bow down, but it can also mean to worship. It's the same word for what the wise men do when they come to the boy Jesus. It says they worship before him. So both those words have this kind of, I think, intentional ambiguity about them, that he's coming to Jesus and there's this clear posture of humility and faith, but it's not clear to what degree the leper understands who he's dealing with here. And what he says is so amazing to me because it's not actually even a question. Have you ever noticed that before? He doesn't ask Jesus for anything. He makes a statement about Jesus. He says, Lord, if you will, if you want to, you can make me clean. It's a really interesting statement to make because it's this expression of faith on the one hand of Jesus' power. Like he's saying, I know what you can do. And the thing I'm wondering is whether or not you want to or are willing to. So the question, the request, is like implicit in a statement. And what he asks for is also interesting because he doesn't say specifically, you can heal my leprosy. That's what he means, but the way he phrases it is different. He says, you can make me clean. Why clean? Why not you can heal me? That's what he means. The reason the leper wants Jesus to make him clean is because his uncleanness, this is so hard for us to understand, but it's worth leaning into for a minute. His uncleanness was almost certainly the biggest problem that this guy faced in his life, not whatever pain he suffered from his illness. And so a lot of the time, this story is presented like with really specific, detailed examples of what leprosy is like. And, you know, I could show you like a bunch of pictures of what leprosy looks like and talk about how horrible it can be to experience that. And that might be what he was experiencing. It's possible. But like I said earlier, we don't actually know for sure what his leprosy experience was like physically, how long he had it, how severe it was. But what we do know with almost certainty is that whatever he was experiencing physically was not as bad as what he was experiencing socially and religiously because of the fact that being a leper made him unclean. Now, to be unclean in Israel, there's a whole bunch of ways that you could become unclean. A lot of them, actually most of them, were super temporary. It's like you came into contact with a certain type of material or you had to move a dead body, like or a dead body of an animal or something like that. And so you would be temporarily unclean. Some of it's just stuff that would happen to you naturally in the course of your life. And so it wasn't a big deal necessarily, and it was usually temporary. But while you were unclean, you could not participate in the religious life of Israel. So you couldn't go to the temple, couldn't go make sacrifices, you couldn't hang out in close contact with your friends and family, and the reason for that, which we'll talk about more in a second, is because your uncleanness, while you were unclean, was communicable. You could make other people unclean at the same time. So during those short periods in your life when you were unclean, you would kind of have to be removed from society. Everyone's like, this is sounding a lot like something that we do deal with. We're not going to talk about that. 
We'll not talk at all about any analogies that could be made. So the lepers had for 10 days, no, I'm just kidding, it wasn't for 10 days. So they had this period of time where they could not be in contact with other people and they couldn't participate in the religious life of their community, which for a Jew in the first century was absolutely everything. But again, for most people, it's temporary. It was short. There's like a ritual you could do. You, had to, you might have a waiting period depending on what it was, but usually there was something that you could do to kind of rectify it and be restored to community. But leprosy also made you unclean. And for a lot of people, that meant you're unclean for the rest of your life, depending on the nature of your disease, how you got it, how long you have it. There's not just like a ritual you can go do to take away the disease that you have. So if you got sick and you got better, there was rituals to be restored to society. But a lot of people got these skin conditions that would just persist and persist. And they would be unable to participate in the life of Israel for the entire time that they had it. So for this leper, we don't know how long it had been since he'd been in community, since he'd been able to participate in all of the things that would have made his life worth living. And there's an important thing that we have to understand. Well, actually, before we move on to that, let me show you this. Because this is the actual description from the law, from Leviticus, about how a leprous person had to behave. Just so you can get a, a tiny glimpse of what this guy's life would have been like. It says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. Why is he doing that? Because his leprosy is communicable. It's a way of warning other people around you. Stay away, I'm not clean. You literally can't even get close enough to somebody for them to be in any kind of danger. So if somebody starts drawing near to you, talk about being a, an outcast. You had to scream at them, I'm, un, I'm not clean. This isn't in the Bible, but there were actually rules that were developing around the time of Jesus that said that if a leper started to get too close to you, you could throw rocks at them to keep them away. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, this is where there's a really kind of natural misunderstanding because we don't have the categories of clean and unclean in our world. It's really easy for us to think that it's like morally bad or that they're evil or something like that. And it's really, really, really clear. It's actually amazing. Just uh, by coincidence, my reading plan through the Bible, which several of the people in the church are doing the same one, just went through all of these laws. So I was reading them really carefully because I knew we were, I was going to be preaching on this. And it's very, very clear as you read through, there's not a moral component to somebody's uncleanness if it's an uncleanness like this. It doesn't make them bad. It doesn't make them evil. The reason that they have to be separated from the temple, from the people, is because of God's holiness, a thing that we talked about that Isaiah interacted with. The best way to think about this is, this is a metaphor we've used in the past, that God's holiness is like a fire that surrounds his presence. So God is everywhere. He's in all of creation, but he chooses to identify it particularly with specific places like the burning bush, like the tabernacle, and later like the temple. And in those places, his holiness, you get the, the heat and light and goodness of his holiness, but you also get the danger of his holiness when you bring that which is unholy too close to it. And so there's this great kind of paradox that's working itself out throughout the story of Israel because God has chosen, he chose at Sinai after the Exodus, he has chosen to graciously live among his people even though they are unholy, unclean, and by the way, sinful and immoral and everything else. And so for a holy God to dwell among unholy people and not compromise his holiness and also not just completely destroy and consume them at every moment 
means that you have to have all of these different, very carefully crafted rituals and means of protecting the people from the holiness of God and preserving God's holiness from being compromised. That's why you have you know, these really long detailed chapters of all of the kind of layers of the tabernacle and then later the temple and all of the rituals that it takes to bring the people closer to God. That's why in the Holy of Holies, in the very center of the temple where God's immediate presence dwells in this special, unique way, the only person who goes in there is the high priest. And he only does it once a year. And he only does it after having cleansed himself in a really careful, particular way, putting on specific clean garments. And and he goes in with fear and trembling, with bells attached to his clothes, so people know that he's still alive in there. It's because of the great respect that's being shown to the holiness of God. It's not a sin to be unclean, but to bring uncleanness into the presence of a holy God is sinful. And not only that, it's incredibly dangerous. There's a sense in which these laws are about protecting a people who are not clean, who are not holy, from that holiness and preserving and upholding the holiness of God at the same time. So again, if you're this leper, for the duration of the time that you have this illness, you cannot approach the presence of God. You cannot approach the people of God. So what he does is the same verses we just read. Behold, a leper came to him. Just that right there. It's the kind of thing you read it in one second as you're reading through the Bible, and you don't realize the tremendous risk that this guy's taking. It's reckless. Forget about whether or not he thinks that Jesus is supernatural in some way. Just the fact that Jesus is a ceremonially clean Jewish man means the fact that this guy is approaching him like this is reckless. Jesus could throw rocks at him if he wants to. And that might have been what he was expecting. But he'd heard there's a miracle worker around, and he's willing to take that risk. And it makes you hear his question differently. You know, he's, he's normally, he's spent who knows how long. Anytime he sees regular society, he has to back away from it and say, I'm unclean, keep away. And so for him to approach and say what he says feels completely different when you know what his life was like. He says, if you want to, you can fix this. If you're willing to, you can make me clean. And I don't know about you guys, but I honestly have had many times in my life when I've been able to relate to the uncertainty that the leprous man shows. He's not doubting the power of Jesus. We don't know why. Maybe he, had, he knows someone personally who's been healed. Maybe he's just heard stories or seen things. But he believes with full confidence that Jesus can heal him. This question is, are you willing to? Do you want to? Or am I about to like get showered by rocks and have to run away again? Have you ever doubted whether Jesus wants to help you? I, that could be for like ultimate things like the salvation of your soul. It could just be stuff you're praying for that you feel like, man, it's not, I'm not being listened to. And you know what? The God I believe in could do something about this. makes what Jesus says. It's one of the most stunning responses in the entire New Testament. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, first of all, what he says, 
looks short in English, and it's even shorter in Greek. In Greek, it's literally two words, two verbs. I will be clean, one word each. So the leper says, if you can heal me, or if you will, you can heal me, rather. And Jesus says, I will, so be clean. But what he says is not the craziest thing that happens here. It says that Jesus reaches out his hand and touches him. And I hope the significance of that isn't lost on you based on everything we just talked about with what this guy's life would have been like. And Jesus, this is important, does not have to touch him. You guys can think of probably stories in the New Testament where Jesus heals people without touching them. Jesus heals people in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes he like does these really elaborate signs where he'll like make mud and put the mud on a blind person's eyes. There's one story where a guy travels a really long distance to come to Jesus because his son is dying and he asks Jesus to heal him and Jesus goes, all right, he's healed. And the guy goes all the way home, not knowing for sure. And when he arrives, his servants are like, hey, your son's better. And the guy's like, what time? What time did he get better? And they're like, yesterday at like one o'clock. He's like, oh my gosh, that's exactly when Jesus said that. So Jesus, the point is, Jesus doesn't have to touch him. He could have healed him and, and maintained externally his ceremonial cleanness at the same time. But Jesus, recognizing what the leper really needs, reaches out and touches him. And what should have happened is they both should have become unclean. Because the thing that's communicable is uncleanness. No one touches that which is unclean and makes that clean. It only goes the other way. But the hand of Jesus in this moment is like the burning coal from the altar in the presence of God in Isaiah 6. When Jesus touches that which is unclean, it is cleanness that is contagious, not uncleanness. And so it's like you can picture the seraph with a burning coal held in tongs touching the lips of Isaiah and saying, your guilt is atoned for. And the hand of Jesus settling on the leper and saying, I will. And everybody watches this guy become clean instead of Jesus becoming unclean. The holiness of Jesus is contagious, not the uncleanness of the leper. Whoops, what did I do, Frank? Save me. Yes, thank you. That was a quick salvation that Frank rendered unto me. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This sometimes like, can feel like it's, it's the anticlimax of the story. Like Jesus has this incredible moment where you know, he reaches across a gap of, of this guy's social life where no one has touched him or been near to him for who knows how long, and he touches him and he's healed, and then Jesus is like, now here's some follow-up instructions about what I'd like you to do. But what he's saying here is actually, in many ways, equally beautiful to what just came. So the first part seems kind of weird. He says, don't tell anyone. And the reason for that is at this phase in Jesus' ministry, he is trying to avoid having giant crowds show up who are only interested in receiving stuff from him. So he's going to go super public later, but at this point, he's teaching about the kingdom of God, he's doing healings and miracles, but he doesn't want massive crowds who are just coming to get miracles and, and see something crazy happen. And by the way, Mark's gospel tells us more details about this story, and he tells us that the leopard doesn't listen to this and goes and tells a bunch of people. And guess what happens? A giant crowd shows up who's only interested in miracles and receiving stuff from Jesus. So that's what Jesus was trying to avoid there. But it's not the only thing he says. He says, 
He then tells them, go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift from the law that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And the reason for this is because that's what the leper has to do to be restored back to society. So his leprosy is healed. But remember I talked about before, your leprosy gets healed. That doesn't automatically make your uncleanness go away. You have to go and do the process with the priest at the temple. There's a sacrifice involved. There's a ritual involved. And then you can be kind of pronounced officially clean. And the reason I love this so much is because Jesus isn't just concerned about the man's physical condition. He wants to ensure that he is fully restored back into the life of the people of Israel. So he says, go, do all of the things that are necessary. Don't get caught up telling people about the the crazy thing that happened. Go and get your life fully restored. Be brought back into the fold the way that you should be. I think it's because Jesus knows, like I said earlier, what this guy's biggest problem has been, and he wants to see a full solution brought about. He wants him fully restored to his family, to his people, and to the religious life of Israel. So it's this beautiful story of like, healing, but also restoration just beyond physical healing into the old life that he probably desperately had wanted back. And if you're like me, it's really easy when you hear this story to kind of place yourself within it. Like, where do I fit in this story? Because we don't have the categories in our world of cleanness and uncleanness. Like, there's nothing you can do that will like, but yeah, again, we're not going to comment on any current analogies that could be made. But I mean, spiritually, religiously, there's not something that makes you sort of like unfit to be in the presence of God because of coming in contact with an item or something like that. So we're not used to cleanness and uncleanness and rituals and ceremonies that we have to go through spiritually in that sense. But all of us, if we're honest, recognize intuitively, deep within ourselves, that we are not on our own able to approach a holy God. If God is actually how he's portrayed, and if holiness means what we think holiness means, then we look at ourselves and the rest of the world around us and we go like, I would be exactly like Isaiah in the presence of God. I mean, the world is just this place that is embroiled in dysfunction and rebellion and evil and sin, and we can't just go like, well, there's evil and sin out there. We know, again, if we're honest, that we participate in the rebellion and the dysfunction. We contribute to it. We're part of it. We're part of the problem. So you think about God and his absolute perfection and holiness the way he's revealed in Scripture, and you go, yeah, man, if I were to approach that God, I would rightly say, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm in danger. I shouldn't be here. And this is the thing. The world we live in would love for the story of Isaiah to go like this. Isaiah comes into the presence of God in the vision, sees God's holiness and says, woe is me, I'm undone, I have unclean lips. And then they would want God to be like, oh, dude, no, it's fine, don't worry about it. This is actually mostly just a self-esteem thing I think you're dealing with. You're fine. I, I would love to have you here. In fact, if my holiness is making you uncomfortable, I'll happily diminish it a little bit for you. Let's dial, I'll dial back. I didn't have to make the train of my robe so big. I apologize. I thought you'd think it was cool, but I see it's intimidating to you. So let's, I'm going to take the holiness down a notch and you are fine. Don't worry about it. Because that's the way we would like to be able to approach God. And again, that's the way that the society we live in, that's the message they want you to know about yourself. 
is, no, no, no. If anything is not okay with you exactly as you are right now, that's their bad, not yours. Meanwhile, Isaiah says, I'm unclean, and God does not disagree with him. God doesn't say, no, you're fine. In fact, you're pretty exceptional in Israel, because Isaiah is, by the way. No, what God does is infinitely better than that kind of fake acceptance that the world wants. God does what is necessary for Isaiah to stand in his presence. God does the work that has to be done so that Isaiah can be with him. He doesn't diminish his holiness or his goodness. He doesn't lie to Isaiah about his state. He goes, yeah, you are unclean. And here comes a fiery coal from my presence to make you clean. Jesus doesn't tell the leper, no worries about leprosy. You're not, this is, no, same thing. He does the work that is necessary to render the leper able to be in his presence. And so it is for every single one of us who comes to Jesus in faith. This is so important. It's not just, hey, you're fine, no worries. No, it's actually, yes, that deep intuition you have that you are not right with God, that you should not just be in his presence exactly as you are, that intuition is correct. And yet God, just like he did with Isaiah, just like Jesus did with the leper, God takes the action necessary to make you able to be in his presence. Look again at what he says to Isaiah. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. It's 800 years before Jesus, you guys. But this picture of God doing what is necessary to make it so Isaiah can stand before him. And not just stand before him, by the way, but go on to be used. That, those cleansed lips are used to deliver some of the most important messages ever spoken in all of human history by the prophet Isaiah. This is how the New Testament talks about it. And this is so key. John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, you want you, your society, you, the world you live in, whether you know it or not, you want to just be loved exactly how you are. And the Bible tells a completely different story. It says, no, it's not something special about Isaiah that makes God cleanse him. It's not something special about the leper that makes Jesus cleanse him. It's not something special about you that makes God willing to send his son to die for you. It is God's eternal, wise, and good decision to love you. God loves you because of God, not because of you. That's great news. You want to see how much he loves you? John says the love of God was made manifest in the sending of his son so that we could live through him. So some of us have still, even if you've been a Christian, some of you who aren't Christians, you have that posture of the leper of saying, maybe God can heal me, but honestly, I don't know if he wants to. And what John is saying is that the, the eternal and greatest I will from God happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus on the cross, dying to make clean, to render able to be in the presence of God people who otherwise would not be able to. That sacrificial death, John says, is the way that the love of God is made manifest in the world. So we didn't have to wait for like 
a mystical voice from heaven to tell us, I will be clean, or to say, even just to say, I love you. The love of God is made manifest in the person and work of Jesus on your behalf. So some of us in the room have been Christian a long time, and you just have to recognize God is not like begrudgingly helping you. God is not like, because of the logic of the atonement, I have to love this guy. God wants to save. God desires to save, and he wants to help and assist. In fact, it's not just, this is so powerful, it's not just that Isaiah is able to stand in the presence of God, and that it's similar for us, and now if we went to the temple or something, like, no, God actually renders you clean, and then he comes to dwell in you. And so if you're a believer, God says, I will be clean, and then he empowers you and fills you and sends you out to be that kind of cleansing force in the world. Christians, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we're the means by which God is continuing this work now. And so if you have that kind of, that, that posture, and this is what comes naturally to me, so I can totally relate to it. If you have that posture of thinking that God is kind of like, you know, perpetually disappointed and doesn't really want to help you, but he has to, or he's obligated to, understand that is not the picture painted by Scripture. John says the coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus, is the manifestation of God's love for you. So you look 2,000 years into history and see the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and say, that is God declaring his love for us. What a gift that is. And for those of you who, who maybe don't know Jesus yet, and you're just exploring, and you want to know more, you're trying to maybe take the claims of Christianity seriously, you are welcome. We love having you here, and uh, we are always here for you to come and talk to and ask questions and learn more. But I want you to, to see this story and see yourself in it. That if you come to Jesus with a desire to be healed, with a desire to be made new, and man, the answer of Jesus is, yeah, of course I want to. Of course I want to heal you. Of course I want to welcome you into the family of God. You're not okay. And it's right to be told that, by the way, just as a side note. Because when culture lies to you and says you're fine just how you are, that leads to horrible, horrible internal stress because we know we're not. God tells the truth, but he also does what's necessary to make the truth about you good news. So we're going to come to communion, as we do at the end of, of every service here. We're going to get a chance to sing some